sixth chapter of Matthew is the beginning of the family tree and the birth of Jesus. It is also a beginning. And we'll see how the Lord has in store. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Sarah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jochaniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jochaniah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Aliakim, and Aliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. May the Lord bless thus far what we have read. Amen. 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God bless this word that we have read here this day. Amen. Reminder that there is an offering plate at the door or at the front here on the communion table. And one today as we turn to study God's Word, and uh, thank you for the kind invitation to be here, and uh, it's good to be here today, and we remember Pastor Compton and the many meetings later this week as well, and pray that all things are recovering in the health. Family histories are very interesting, are they not? Because family histories don't tell you everything. They often do not reveal and talk about the skeletons in the family tree. Maybe you know someone who is a great genealogist. They love studying family trees. They've got it all worked out. They can tell you right down to the 42nd cousin how you're related. Wonderful. And you say, I don't have time for it. Or maybe you've had some interest in your family tree and you've asked a question in your family tree about that one great-great-great-grandfather, but there's silence. You know what I'm, where I'm going. Family trees have skeletons in the closet. And we keep the closet door closed. But Matthew doesn't close the closet door. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, opens the closet door. And the skeletons are all falling out of the closet. We're faced with a great question. In the beginning of the life of Jesus and his family tree, why do we begin the way it does? So I want you to keep that question in your mind this morning as we look at this. And what we want to look at is four things primarily in Matthew 1, 1 to 17 this morning. We want to see that God has a purpose in this family tree. He states it right up front. He gives it, God's purpose is to take you back to his promises. But the second thing is, God wants to take you back to family brokenness, to family skeletons, to family scandals. And he has a purpose. And then he takes you to God's promise, to one woman. And then he gives us the challenge that these 
promises in this genealogy have a worldwide implication today. Matthew 1, verse 1, begins with a summary statement. And if you only know verse 1, you know the two promises. If you get mixed up with all the names that follow from verse 2 down to about verse 15, don't worry about it. Because Matthew realizes that we're probably all not going to have good Hebrew memories and be able to remember D-A-V-I-D in Hebrew and keep repeating it. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a poem. And so you can memorize it if you know Hebrew and can do the, the letters of David. But if you're not like that, few of us are, then all you need to think about, first of all, is the first verse. And the first verse tells you what you need to know. This is a book about the beginnings of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There you have it. God has a purpose through the generations. And God is making here in verse 1 a reminder to us through Matthew that God had two great purposes. And what are those two great purposes and promises that he had? Number one, he made a promise many, many generations ago, hundreds of years ago, millennia ago, to a man called Father Abraham. And that one promise that he made to Abraham, you remember it, summarized in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Abraham, you have no children. But you're going to have so many children, you will not be able to count your children. You will go down to the beach, and you will try to count the little grains of sand, and you can't do it. You're going to look up at night on a clear night, and you're going to try to count the stars, but you can't do it. Abraham, that's how many children you are going to have. And he had none. And he was an old man. That was the, the kicker of the promise. And what is Matthew doing as he opens up this? He is saying, I'm taking you back to that promise. And the promise is now fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Because Jesus is going to have so many children, sons and daughters, that you will not be able to number them. There is going to be a great family, the family of Abraham, through Jesus. That's the first promise. So God's telling you, I keep my promises. You may know people who can't keep a promise at all, but there is a God of heaven and earth who keeps his promise. And it was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. Second promise that he makes to the generations is this. This man, Jesus, is the son of David. I made a promise way back in Samuel, you sang. And that promise to, to, to Samuel, through Samuel to David was this that from your line there is going to come the king of the kings. And there's going to come a kingdom that is going to advance. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And as you open the pages of Gospel of Matthew, you're confronted with the king and the kingdom. 
Over and over you keep saying, now why does he keep saying that? Why does he keep saying that? Are you in the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Because the king has come. King Jesus. And so Matthew 1, verse 1, is God making his promises good. He's kept his word. Men may not keep their promises, but God keeps His promises. And so here is a reminder of that. But then the record changes tune in verse 2, doesn't it? And it gets into the begats. A year or so ago, I remember listening and was quite intrigued by this group out of, out of Kansas, a contemporary Christian singing group. Um, Poor Bishop Hooper. I don't know that you've ever heard of them or not. But they, they sang acoustic instruments and other things. They were singing Genesis, er, Matthew chapter 1, and I thought, what a terrible selection for music. Well, I was humbled because I had to change my mind and say, what a beautiful Christmas hymn sung by this group, Poor Bishop Hooper out in Kansas. I sat spellbound listening to them sing Matthew 1. From verse 2 on, and as you read the verses, you say, oh, what's it all about? All these names and all these men. Ah, but a few women. And it's the women that really catch your eye in this chapter. Because, you see, Matthew has changed the whole agenda. Jewish genealogies are about tracing the, the line. And they always trace the male line. Go back and read them in the Old Testament and you're amazed at them. Ah, this is the line of Cain, the line of Seth. But something happens here. Matthew, a good Jewish man, now a Christian, he takes his genealogy and he does the unthinkable. He inserts five women. And don't think he's got some kind of a strange feminist agenda. That's not his agenda. Wait till you see what his agenda is. To pull every skeleton he can find in the closet out. That's his agenda. And he's doing it for a greater agenda. And so he pulls out women. And the first one he comes to in verse 3. Now this is shocking, friends. I want you to, to see it. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, the third verse of the New Testament. And he brings in the name Tamar. Now go back and remember your Old Testament Sunday school lessons. And what do you remember about Tamar? Well, Tamar... She's a Gentile. She's not a Jewess. She's a Canaanite. A pagan worshiper. She was married to Judah's first son, Ur. Well, you know the story. It didn't go very well, and there was no child from that. It was a mess. God judges him, kills him. There's a second son, Onan. It's a mess. 
There's no son there either. He's judged. The story goes on. Tamar's smart. She's clever. She's going to get her revenge on this old man, Judah, who is holding back the third son. She dresses up as a prostitute. This is verse 3 of the New Testament. She dresses up as a prostitute, seduces her father-in-law, commits incest, and verse 3 of the New Testament, I remind you, and has children. And you say, Matthew, why are you opening the door of the closet on this genealogy? You didn't need to put that all in here, brother. Why are you doing this? What's your purpose? There is a purpose. That purpose is this. Jesus Christ came incarnately to a real world. This is not a fairy tale. This is the real world. Before you press the button and maybe do your DNA ancestry dot test, be ready for what you could find out. You don't know what you could find out. You see, we come from a line of sinners. Every one of us. There is no one righteous, no, not one. We are spiritually sick. And in the third verse of the Gospel of Matthew, in the very first page of the New Testament, we are told Jesus Christ came into a world and to a line and a family tree that was full of brokenness and deceit and incest. Now to Judah's credit, he woke up and he said, she, the Canaanite, is more righteous than I. That's a beautiful verse in Genesis 38 and verse 26. Wow. What a mess. You see, here it is. When we come to the incarnation of Jesus, it's an incarnation into the world we live in. And the world we live in isn't perfect. It's sinful. It's hurting and it's broken. And when you open the door of your family as well, it is full of sin and sickness spiritually. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. God is full of grace. And if it were not for grace, where would we be? So there's the lesson of Tamar. But God keeps on going on, and, and Matthew keeps going on, and he, he takes you to Rahab. Canaanite woman number two, another Gentile, not a Jew. You know where this is going, and there's this Canaanite. She's a prostitute. And yet in chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 8, it says that she had faith. 
she even records the story of history and she says, I heard what went on in Egypt. I know the stories. I heard it. Your God is amazing. And what does Hebrews call that? Hebrews calls that in chapter 11, verse 32, faith. A Canaanite prostitute woman becomes, by God's grace, a woman of faith in the line of Jesus. Spurgeon said it the best anyone has ever said it. God is a people where we little dream of it. And he has chosen ones among and a sort of people whom we dare not even hope for. Who would think that grace could grow in the heart of one who was a harlot by name? And yet it grew there like a fair flower blooming upon a dunghill on a bright, star-glittering eve. There for faith, her faith grew and brought forth glory to God. The unexpected woman, Rahab of faith, grace is amazing. God can redeem all those we think he can. It's a reminder to us that God works out his promises, but God is sovereign over sin. And Jesus Christ is incarnate and coming into the world for sinners. And Matthew is alerting you to this on the first page, on the first chapter of his gospel. Who did Jesus Christ come for? Ask yourself. He did not come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. Open up that door of the closet and let Jesus Christ speak to you for he has come for sin. Then we go to the third woman, the wife of Uriah, and you'll notice the name isn't mentioned, Bathsheba. We put it in. Who is Uriah? Uriah is a Hittite. Now the Hittites were living in Turkey, but they came down through Syria and they were mingled amongst the Canaanite peoples. They no longer exist, they're extinct as a people, a race. Uriah the Hittite, got that? He's not a pure Jew. He doesn't have a good family tree. Who was Bathsheba? Well, she married the Hittite. Was she a Hittite too? Probably. Probably the story is that somehow these, this couple, this Hittite couple, were enamored with the one true living God and they left their paganism of the Hittite pagan religion and they crossed over and they joined and they came amongst the Israelites and that's why he was given the, the place of supreme command in the army. But he's not genealogically a good man. You see the point? Uriah and Bathsheba, they've got quite a mixture in their marriage too. And then we know the rest of the story and we see Uriah is murdered. David lies. David commits adultery. His son dies. 
is another son. The incarnation of Jesus Christ to a very sinful world. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth of Look at the Gentiles just keep coming out all over the all, all over here. Three Gentiles in a row, perhaps four in a row. And what is Matthew trying to say? Jesus Christ came for sinners. Jesus Christ came for all people. Don't lose sight of that. Jesus Christ came for sinners. And the line of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and through Uriah is a line of skeletons. God, in His grace, is saying something wonderful. Shame can be removed. God wants honesty. And God brings healing in that honesty. So we see the fulfillment of all of that. So God has his promises, verse 1. God works in incarnate ways through this mess of a family tree. And then he comes to the woman who is set apart differently in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, and here all those lovely, and if you hear the cadence of the old King James, the begat stop. The husband of Mary. The husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. What is God doing in verse 16? God is culminating in the extraordinary. It's the most remarkable birth in the entire list. It stands out from all the others. Because Joseph does not begat Jesus. Instead, Mary is referred as the one who will bear Jesus. What Matthew is doing is this. He is culminating his genealogy in the extraordinary, which is a fulfillment of Genesis 3, verse 15. Because from a woman is going to come the deliverer. Not from a man, but through this woman. Not from Eve, but through the great second Eve, Mary, will come the Redeemer. And so he points to us of the extraordinary, the unusual, and he highlights it. He wants us to see it. Joseph is a husband, but he's the husband of this important woman 
and God has done something extraordinary. It's not ordinary. It's a virgin birth. It's by the Holy Spirit. And here it's Jesus, the Christ, the second one, the anointed of God. So he's culminating. Now, Matthew doesn't say it explicitly. But if you take the Gospels, you look out and you say, no, Mary is not meant here to be put up as some intercessory. Mary is not put up to be revered or, or honored and worshipped in an unusual way. She is only the fulfillment of the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. It is extraordinary. It is unusual, but it is a promise fulfilled. But in that promise fulfilled, she, too, is a sinner needing that Savior. And that's why she will sing about it in her beautiful song. She is the one in need of salvation, just like every other woman and man in that line. No exception. She, too. It's extraordinary, it's unusual, it's a promise fulfilled. It's of God, but it is for a great purpose. Now that leads me to a fourth point, which I think is the culminating point of where Matthew is going. When you take up the Gospel of Matthew, I want you to think of it this way. You only need to read two chapters. Now, you need to read them all, but let me just say it this way for a moment. Hear me out. You need to read two chapters. You need to read Matthew chapter 1, and you need to read Matthew chapter 28. Now listen a moment. You're saying, I don't like chapter 1 because it's all those strange words. Okay? Pick out the women. Pick out the skeletons. Pick out the point. Who did Jesus Christ come for? Sinners. Of what tribe were those nations and those peoples? Canaanites, Moabites, Hittites, and a Jew. In other words, it's for all people Jesus came. And what Matthew is trying to make the point, because he's the Jewish writer to the Jewish Hebrews, and he's trying to make the point in chapter 1 that he's going to end with in chapter 28, and that is this. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the entire world, of all peoples, of all cultures, of all races, of all tribes. That's what he's saying in chapter 1. Now, how does he end chapter 28? What is chapter 28? It's a great commission. And how does the Great Commission end in chapter 28, verses 19 and 20? It's the same language. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, gather the disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. We'll come to the last point in a moment. What does Jesus say there at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew? All nations, all peoples, all tribes, including Canaanites, Moabites, 
Hittites, Jews. I have come for them. You see, what Matthew has done is he's put two covers on this book. Cover one is Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of sinners of this world. Jesus Christ send you out to declare a message to every sinner in this world. Jesus Christ has laid down his life that you might be forgiven, pardoned, and redeemed of all tribes and people. There's a strange thing going on in our country and actually almost everywhere in the Western world. I recently encountered it just a few weeks, in the last few weeks. It goes like this. What is multiculturalism? Ah, multiculturalism is different race, different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages, you know, coming to live in your country, dwell together. Be a multicultural society. One of the students I had in class was a former Muslim. Ask someone who's a Muslim and they'll tell you something like this. Be a Muslim in religion is to have one race, one culture. I want you to think about this for a moment. In this chapter, there are different national, ethnic, cultural, racial entities. But when Jesus Christ comes, you can bring all your culture, but you come and your faith and your religion and your morality within that culture changes. We are not saying to be born in that country, that's your religion and you have to keep it. That's not the Christian way. The Christian way is this. When you come to Jesus Christ, regardless of your culture and your racial identity, you become a new person in Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about. And that's what Matthew is concerned about here. So when you hear words about multiculturalism, Make sure your mind is clear. Multiculturalism does not mean that you can't change your faith. Because the gospel changes the faith of peoples. But it doesn't change their skin. It doesn't change the language they speak. It doesn't change some of the traditions that you might have of what you eat and what you don't eat. But it can change your heart and your faith. You are not just born with a religion and it doesn't change. The gospel of Jesus Christ is you are called to change 
and to come to Jesus Christ and to bow before Him as Lord and Savior. What do you think the last chapter of the book of Scripture speaks about? The last few chapters. It is going to be the multicultural church of the book of Revelation, but it is multicultural, tribal, but it is one faith. And it is people who have changed their faith because they have come to the man, Jesus, who was born to save sinners of all nationalities. The gospel is for sinners, it's for outcasts, it's for Gentiles, it's for all nations, and it is a call to all other religions of the world to be judged by and to be found wanting and to come and lay down at the cross of Jesus. The incarnation here is about a world that's messy and full of sin. And Christ is born into that line. Yet he is righteous in every way. It's a promise to broken humanity. He is the savior of sinners. And as someone has paraphrased of Martin Luther in a very loose English translation, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree in chapter 1. I have come for sinners. The genealogy can't be more explicit than to make that clear. And here is the question. Did he come then for you? Someone who is not righteous, who is a sinner, who is broken, trust or promise and life in the law of God. That is who Jesus Is that who you are? Did he come for you, a sinner? He is the redeemer of sinners. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray.